My name is Era, and I'm the host of the Tamil Creator Podcast. I chat with creators from all over the world to share their stories and discuss hot topics in a way that I hope inspires, educates, and entertains you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Tamil Creator. I'm your host, Era, and uh, today I have a very special guest on the podcast. Uh, a lot of you might be familiar with her name. Uh, her name is Radhika, and I I had to practice this for like five minutes before this. So, Radhika Sit Sabeisen, Eason. Oh my gosh, I'm gonna say that again, guys. Radhika Sit Sabeisen. I got it right, Radhika. Sit yes? Sabeisen. You did. Got you got it. I'm not saying that again. Is a former politician, <laughs> and she was the first Tamil to be elected as a member of parliament. She's currently a professor at Centennial College. Uh, I'm really excited to chat with her. Um, you know, I, so first of all, Radhika, welcome to the show, and thanks for kind of making time to jump on the podcast. Thanks, great to be here. For me, I'm always a fan of. I'm like a very chronological kind of story gatherer, and like for me, it's always. I feel like childhood definitely defines a lot of the things that happen later in life in terms of choices you make and who you are as a person. So I always mm-hmm. like to start at the beginning. Could you tell us, I guess, in terms of like a bit about like your family, your upbringing, and kind of how that played a part in your decisions later in life to kind of get into politics and now into education? Um, sure. Well, uh, we have our own version of the migrant story, like many of us, as part of the global diaspora. And um, I was born during the war, so I am a child of war and came to Canada when I was five and met my father here in Canada as well, because I think I was one or almost two when he left to try and find us somewhere to live and then reunited here in Canada after a few years. Um, I grew up in a household where my mother was the single breadwinner because my father had um, had been invo- involved in a workplace accident and had become permanently disabled and couldn't work. Um, and my mom, who was supposed to, who had dreams of being a doctor and then maybe a nurse or something in the medical profession. And when she came here, signed up for courses to be to become an RPN, a registered practical nurse, and then quickly realized, well, if I go to school, then who's going to look after and feed the four children. Um, So she quit her schooling and found a work in, in a warehouse. And um, I'm very grateful that that work that she found was unionized because that meant that she had benefits. It meant that she had a little bit of a better income as well, wage rate that she was paid. And it meant that we could actually live at or below, or, you know, we could straddle that poverty line and survive. Um, Because I know many other aunties and people who also worked at in warehouses who were making a lot less than my mother had been at that time. And we wouldn't have been able to even dream of making ends meet if she didn't have that unionized job. So I'm very grateful for the labor movement. And I think that early understanding of being a child of an injured worker, as well as a child who benefited from the labor movement. And my mom was somebody who was loosely involved with the union. So she would go to her union meetings and make sure she was informed. Um, 
so that has definitely helped me, I think, start to solidify the definite left of center ideologies that I have. Um, both of my parents always instilled in us that education was our key out, key out of the downward spiral of poverty, um, being stuck in that system of poverty. Um, it was our key to reach out and grab onto any opportunity that we wanted to in this country because I mean, I, my, my, my girl cousins who are, who were still in Sri Lanka at the time, I remember my, my mom telling us about my aunt saying how they were just pulled out of school because it wasn't safe for them to go to school because I, I, I was going to say, we all know, but we don't necessarily all know that rape is, was commonly used as a weapon of war. And so it wasn't safe for the girls to walk to and from school. So they just had to not go to school for many years. Um, whereas I was privileged to come to Canada as a five-year-old. I had never been to school before in Sri Lanka and I came here and I started school for the first time, but very privileged that I got to start school in grade one and literally had every opportunity available to me. So I think as most Tamil people, um, probably most South Asians or even Eastern Asians or um, the ideology is must, must, must get education. So that was instilled in us. Um, and also we, even though we, the six of us lived in a two bedroom apartment, um, my mom was the only income earner and my dad was at home. He still basically ran an immigrant settlement service support network um, agency, we'll call it, but there was no agency out of our apartment because he couldn't work. And so what he did was he volunteered his time to help new immigrants who came to Canada, new Tamil people mostly who came to Canada and we'd get random phone calls people we didn't know who arrive at the airport and um, and say, you know, Aya, and Aya means older gentleman, right? And I'll just translate. Um, <laughs> you know, they told us to call you when we got here and we were like, okay. And uh, at some point we got a car and we didn't have to travel by bus to go pick up these people from the airport or they'd get catch a taxi taxi and come over to our apartment and they stayed with us. They moved into our living room for a day or two or a week or whatever they needed. And my mom would feed them and my dad would help them with their settlement immigration paperwork, sometimes even going as an interpreter with them because he was fluent in both languages. So he could do that. So this whole need to give back and recognize my privilege, recognize that we are secure here and we need to help others because a lot of the people that came didn't have the linguistic capacities that my dad had. So he wanted to break down that barrier for the people who were coming in and would help. So that also was from my parents and I saw them do it. I saw them day in and day out, just be there to help our community. Um, yeah. And we, I started being a community organizer as a really young child as well. This was, this was well before we had a car. So uh, going to Tamil school, um, when we were in Mississauga, I grew up in Mississauga, and at that time, there weren't very many Tamil people in Mississauga. Um, there was one place that had one class of Tamil at a at a, a heritage language program, and um, 
we used to bus there three buses every Saturday morning, one way. And it was a pain in the rear end. And <laughs> first I thought it was fun and exciting. And then, you know, after a while I was like, I'm not doing this anymore. Like, I don't, I don't care for this Tamil business and school business. Don't I know Tamil? Don't I learn Tamil at home? Um, I don't want to do this. And my parents were like, yeah, well, that's not an option. You need Tamil education. So, um, so my dad was, but I was like, I don't want to go this far. It's too far. And so we were like, okay, well, let's figure out a solution. So we found out, we reached out to the local school board trustees, the, the Peel school board, the public school board was like, yeah, no, there's not enough Tamil people to get a second one. And we reached out to the Catholic school board and the trustee was like, fine, you sign up people, I'll start a class. So that's what I did. I think young seven-year-old and uh, daddy in tow made flyers and canvassed the community that we knew and signed up people. And we had 25 people signed up and that's all we needed to start a new class. So that's what we did. And then with the Dufferin Peel Catholic District School Board, at some point, I remember we had 10 different schools that ran Tamil classes with multiple classes at each location because the Tamil community had grown so much in the city of Mississauga. So community organizing and identifying problems and working towards finding a solution is something that I learned from my parents as well and something that I got to practice as a young person. Um, so I, I can keep going with ex examples, but then that'll be our whole time though. A theme as you're kind of speaking when I, when I speak to other people and just personally as well is I feel like a lot of uh, immigrant, the kids of children of immigrants get a lot of responsibility put on them um well at least for my parents especially where like English wasn't as good for them so I ended up being as being the default translator because I was the oldest and like translating a lot of things like mortgage documents or like just anything related to you know something important or relevant so um, right. but in the moment I felt like I didn't like that responsibility I felt like I was forced to kind of grow up faster than I wanted to because of all these things I had to do but looking back as I got older and I reflected I was like, oh, that was actually um, a definite, it was definitely a gift that I was given. I just didn't realize that at the time. Right. Um, is, that some, is that something that you would agree with or disagree with, just out of curiosity? I, I agree with you that it makes, that yeah, many younger children had to do that. And even when I was a member of parliament, many of the people that came into my office would bring their children as their translators. So I get it. I didn't have to do that, though. So I'm grateful okay. that I didn't have to um, because my dad knew the language very well. And um, I'm also the youngest of four. So it definitely none of those responsibilities fell on me. Got it. OK. <laughs> um, and, you know, you, you talk really well, um, like eloquently kind of about your start in politics. But what was really I mean, I guess there's no single, you know, definitive moment. I know it started when you're really young, but to get to that path where you got, you know, elected, um, like, how did that first start? Like, how did you like get into that world where that was possible, where that was a possibility? Um, I really think it's my decision to move to Carleton, Carleton University. I was at U of T and I wasn't um, feeling it. Let's just say that. And I decided to, after two years at U of T, just up and leave. And I, I, I was involved with Tamil Students Association. I was supposed to get involved with the, the, the UT, the University of Toronto, Mississauga student camp, um, 
council as well that that year. And I was like, you know what, I'm just going to leave U of T. Went to Carleton and got very involved with the Students Association there. Um, my first year, I started working for them as a front desk staff person. And that same year, I decided I was going to run for office. I ran and won as the as one of the vice presidents of the Students Association and learned a lot about how advocacy works in within an organized structure, um, student advocacy, and got very involved with the Canadian Federation of Students as well, and learned a lot about the broader systems in our Canadian society and how they impact students for the most part, but also how many marginalized communities are created through the systemic um, discriminations, really, right, systemic inequities. And became more and more of a louder voice in more than just my the, the small niche of the student union and Carleton University. I think that's where I really learned the, the, the foundations of an election, how to be a proper candidate. I mean, I ran an election in middle school, but it's not the same, right? That's just a popularity contest. But um, this was when I really learned how to strategically organize and run an election campaign. And that was the first time that I was approached to be a federal candidate as well. While I was at Carleton, I got a phone call one day from someone representing the NDP saying, hey, would you be a candidate for us in Scarborough Agent Court, you're, you're, you have really good name recognition out there. Um, and I mean, you'd be running against Jim Karajanis, who's a dinosaur, you know, he's been there forever and he always wins. You'll maybe get 2% of the vote, but um, this would be a great opportunity for you to run in a campaign as a candidate and um, start building that for you. Would you run? And uh, so I guess that's how I originally got started. <laughs> Okay. Um, when you got elected and you became the first Tamil politician to get elected at that federal level, and you were so young at that time, I mean, relatively young at that time. <laughs> um, yes, I am old now. Thanks. <laughs> uh, uh, like, what, like, what did you feel? Was it like, like often with, other, you know, when you have these goals, or just these big things that you aspire to, and then you hit them, it's often anticlimactic. But what, what did you feel like in that moment when you found out that you were officially elected and how well, did you feel um, yeah we were we were in the basement of where I had my campaign office it was a, like a banquet hall type thing that was in the in the basement and um because my campaign was the biggest in the Scarborough area for the NDP candidates a couple of the other ones had also joined us and at one point we thought that another one of us had won as well and we're so excited that she was going to be winning with another young woman I was just like, go, 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 pushing for her to win and then realize that she wasn't going to. And then my account was the one that was taking the longest because we had that the constituency of Scarborough Rouge River was huge. It was almost 140,000 people. And a lot of people had turned out to vote that year. So it was taking longer to count. So mine was the last one to come in. And it was literally... (laughs) a second where I had turned away from the screen and the room erupted. <laughs> and that's when I, that's how I knew I won. And I was just like, what? 
we won like and it wasn't even an i won it was a we won because Definitely. it really wasn't a me thing um if it was just me I, i'd still be here going oh can i be a candidate again and <laughs> maybe win 2000 votes um but literally the entire room felt that we had won and um we it was like this giant group hug and we were like okay well now what do we do <laughs> um and it was it was again the we because the we just went into okay she won let's get this happening now and one person was calling the other candidates to make the, the, the you know the, the concession phone call or and then uh, somebody else was like okay we got to get you down to jack's party because you won and you got to be on the stage with jack when he wins and it was just a whole go 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 and i really didn't get to absorb the holy wow, it's real until later, because that night was just rushed. It was just run, 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 go, go, go. And that became the life of a, of the, of a politician, right? Where somebody else got your schedule and you're just going. And that started that night when I won. Wow. Speaking of Jack, like, I mean, I feel like he was such a, I mean, obviously I, I'm only speaking as someone that's like read about him or like seen him in interviews and just, things that you hear about him but he seemed like a very genuinely nice human being and like great politician what was it like working um in a in somewhat of a close capacity with him on you know a, a few different things like what was that experience like this episode is sponsored by nobody that's right nobody so if you could be kind enough to hit that subscribe button that would mean a lot to me oh he, you're right he I almost say he is. Um, he definitely was an amazing human being. Um, I was privileged to have had him as a mentor. Um, I've not had many mentors in my life, and he's definitely one of the few who I've. I'm clearly lucky to have had him as a mentor, and I wish I had him ha had more time to learn from him. Um, he, <laughs> my first interaction with him was at an, at an event. I was still considering if I was going to be a candidate or not. And um, he was part of the, deci the deciding factor of me deciding to run. Actually, he found me in the crowd. and was like, Hey, I've been trying to get a hold of you and trying to get you to run for a while. And I was like, hmm? I'm sorry, you know me. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, he busted. He pulled out a business card, wrote something on it and wrote a number on it and gave it to me and said, call me anytime. We need to talk. And I was like, yeah, okay, sure. Sure, buddy. Yeah. Jack Layton's giving me his phone number to call him. And uh, it was a Thursday evening, I believe, Wednesday or Thursday evening. My memory is starting to go. I see, I told you I'm getting old or I am old. Um, you said it, not me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've reached the age where young 14-year-old me defined 40 as officially old. <laughs> and so... I've reached that now. Okay. So I'm officially old. No, but Jack, I it was at Wednesday or Thursday evening. It was around eight, seven or eight o'clock in the evening. I finally decided to call a week after he gave me his phone number and he answered the phone. He's like, Hey, how you doing? You know? And I was like, Hey, uh, hi, <laughs> this is Jack. Um, and he's like, he started yelling at me. He's like, <laughs> why are you calling me right now? Don't be calling me go out there, knock on some doors or go to a, go to a community event or something, whatever. Don't worry about me. Call me back at like 10 o'clock. And he hung up the phone on me and I was like, uh, okay. 
because this man had already decided that I was going to be a candidate and uh, okay. he wanted to take me in under his wing. And uh, I just sat there and was mind, bo- mind boggled for a while. And then I called him back at 930 or 10, you know, after the window to go to go knock on doors or something was closed. Um, I, I was so blessed to have Jack as as a mentor, but also as a I don't want to say a fan, but he was a supporter of mine. He really was in my corner. Um, the first time I went to Saskatchewan to do something that was political in nature for the party, I went there and literally everybody in the party knew me already. And they're like, oh my goodness, you're finally here. We've heard so much about you, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, who's talking about me in Saskatchewan? I don't know anybody out there. They're like, oh, Jack, he's always talking about you. I was like, oh, okay. Same thing happened when I went to Vancouver. Exact same thing happened. Oh my goodness, you're finally here. He's been telling us all about you. (laughs) And so he was amazing. And he, you know, he trusted me. He, he, he placed his faith in me, um, not just as a person who could help grow the party, but as a person who really had drive and passion to do the work that needed to be done. Um, and, you know, when, when the Tamil community was out on the streets for days and days and days, years and years and years, he was always there supporting us, but he always was an advocate to say, you know, I'm a, I'm a white guy standing with you saying, I'm here to support you, but why don't you get one of your people on the inside of the House of Commons and have a true insider's voice? And I I, I don't know if he is the only, he is the one who planted that seed, but he made sure to make it happen. He made sure to push the Tamil community to find a candidate who was Tamil at that time. Um, and then he made sure that any initiative I wanted to do, that he supported me. He was in my corner in creating the, the, the first bill for Tamil, creating Tamil Heritage Month. That was me. What was it in 2012 or 2013 that I introduced that bill? And he was there 100%. He was always there um, creating a parliamentary association he was like, all right, I'm on board. Um, any, anything, any initiative that I wanted to do, or even um, giving, making me the uh, shadow minister on post-secondary education, um, putting me on the immigration committee, because those were areas that I'm, that I have some expertise in, but also interest in, right? So that's great leadership. Like he, he found that yeah. fit between what you're interested in, what you're good at, or at least had expertise in. Um, that's definitely great leadership. Um, would you say that your time spent in parliament um, and just kind of, you know, those four years that you had, how would you assess your work or like, I guess, how you performed during that time looking back now? How I performed? Hmm. Well, I guess I should have done a full 360. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Considering it was my first term um, and there's a lot of expectations on me, 
um, even within the caucus, I was the vice chair of the national caucus for two years. Um, and I was thrust into a leadership position within the team. I was, ex I, when I first decided I was going to be the candidate, you know, I was like, okay, I was considering it at 27, decided, you know, the, the election happened when I was 29. I figured I'd be one of the younger ones in the team and I'd be able to just soak it all in and learn from people. But by the end of the campaign and the result of the campaign, I ended up being middle-aged. So I ended up being the person that many of the younger folks reached out to for help. And I was like, folks, I don't know what I'm doing either. I'm figuring <laughs> this out. But I had to be like, okay, pull up my, pull up my socks and be like, okay, roll up these sleeves and I got this. And, um, and then we had a lot of MPs from Quebec as well who came and leaned on me and older ones as well because they saw something in me. And so there was a lot of responsibility within the team that I ended up taking on. And there was a lot of responsibility and expectations on me from our community, from the Tamil community, um, not just in the constituency of Scarborough Rouge River, because technically that's all I represented was the constituency of Scarborough Rouge River. But as you mentioned, as the first person of Tamil heritage to be elected to Canadian parliament um, was huge. It wasn't huge for me. It was huge for us as a global society um, because this was the first time that any Tamil was elected outside of, what was it, you know, Sri Lanka, India, Singapore, and Malaysia, I think. You know, outside of Southeast Asia, this is the first time that the Tamil was, that a Tamil was elected to a federal parliament. That was huge because then it meant that we collectively now had a bigger soapbox we could stand on, a bigger voice. So I didn't feel, you know, that didn't feel light. That's for sure. Um, and in my first two weeks of being elected, I started getting constituency support, help emails and letters being sent from Tamil people across the country. I had stuff being sent to me from people in the US people in Europe. And I was like, how am I supposed to help you people? <laughs> but I wanted to, I couldn't. I mean, I, all members of parliament have basically have the same budget and, you know, a little bit of calculation adjustment based on your population, but didn't make a huge difference. Um, so there were, there were MPs who had 20,000 people they represented. And then there was me with almost 140,000 people. Um, with the same kind of budget. So I had the same kind of staff team as everybody else had. And my constituency was extremely busy because it's a community with a lot of marginalized people based on income, uh, race, but also new hire, new immigrant communities, people where a lot of seniors and elders in the communities, young families, young families that are separated trying to reunite. There's a whole bunch that was going on. And, you know, a lot of the seniors that I talked with had language barriers. So then, but they were not tapping into the system as much as they should have been. They weren't getting their pensions properly. They were not getting their, the services that they needed to, or could have received from the federal government because they didn't have the language ability. And so I did my best to really provide those services. So to answer your question, you know, a little bit more of a succinct way. Um, I think I did a pretty darn good job. 
Um, with respect to constituency, constituent servicing, um, we had a higher servicing ratio than any of the other constituency MPs in our area. We, um, you know, my next door neighbor maybe had about 20 people a week. I had at least 20 walk-ins a day. Um, we, we have, I, I don't remember the, 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 the stats off the top of my head anymore. I have it in a file, but the number of people that we had actually helped grossly huge number. Um, there were many people that I had to say, you know, I can't really do much for you other than provide you support. Cause I wasn't going to lie to them. And then they would go to another MP and be like, and get promises made that they could help them. And all they did was nothing and drag them along for a year or two. And then be like, Oh, you know, it is what it is. But I, I think I was true to myself for the most part. I did, I did get lost in the shuffle lost in the busyness for a while. But after about the first year, I think I just said, I have become a shadow of myself and I'm not being true to who I am. And that introspection, I think really helped me to be comfortable with my skin in this role. Um, it was hard because there were so many expectations from so many angles. And I felt like I had to do everything and be everything for everyone. And there's absolutely no way it can be done. I guess um, you kind of answered something I was thinking as you were speaking, which was you were the, like you mentioned, like this rising star within kind of the NDP. Um, so I was going to ask, like, why didn't you, I, I know you did run again, but like, I guess, um, I don't know if politics is fully kind of in the rear view for you, but like, because of all this potential that you had and like, um, you know, um, all the opportunities you had seemed like it would be something that you could have continued to do. So what at the, what was the final, you know, stake in the cross or whatever you want to call it that just made you shift away from, all right, I'm leaving politics, at least for now, unless you have different plans and I'm going to go move into the world of education. Like, what was that? Um, you're right. I did have a lot of opportunities within the party, but then Jack died. And he was and, your champion. Uh, he was my biggest champion. And, um, yeah, he opened doors for me, which made a world of a difference. Um, when he died and the leadership convention was approaching, I actually had one of the provinces, <laughs> funny enough, Saskatchewan, call me and say, we want to back you to be the leader. We want you to run to be the next leader of the federal NDP and um, we'll find the 100,000, I think it was, to, we'll put up the 100,000 to um, get your name on the ballot. We'll have to put up, put together a team and uh, raise the rest for the campaign. I was, <clears throat> I was humbled by that, but I also felt like I had so much more to learn before I could be the leader of the party. And I clearly did not run to be leader in that campaign. And uh, Tom Mulcair won. And when Tom won, the culture shifted significantly and um, my opportunities disappeared, disappeared. So I worked as an island within a bay. Um, so I operated, I did everything that I could. I, I became the chair of the Canadian Association of Parliamentarians on Population and Development. I did a lot of global work on population and development, women and girls, girls' rights to education, um, 
and became basically Canada's spokesperson at the UN, uh, the UNFPA on population development. Um, every unit, every international convention I went to or international um, meeting that I went to at of the UNFPA or Women Deliver or whatever, people were like, what, Canada's here? Canada cares about this topic now? And I was like, yeah, I'm here. <laughs> And there was another senator who was there as well at some of these things. And I started becoming a trainer for many of these global uh, UN meetings where I started becoming being invited, not just as a participant, but as a speaker. And so I just operated on the the women girls education. I were started working more on my private members motion, which is on elimination of poverty, child childhood poverty in Canada. Um, the Tamil human rights stuff is always something I'm gonna I I did work on and will continue to work on. Um, and my constituents. I literally said nose grindstone, let's go. And that's all I did. Um, I, after two years of being the vice chair of the National Caucus, I said, you know what, it's time for somebody else to take on this leadership. And there was a lot of younger people. And so I encouraged another young woman to run. And I said, oh, you know, I'm not going to run against you. I'd like for you to run and learn this. And that was Rosalind Embrosso, okay. who went on to become reelected a couple of times as MP. Um, and, you know, I made... You might be going, your next question is probably going to be about the 2015 election and Tom Mulcair and all this jazz. And so I'll just answer it now. <laughs> um, so it, it shifted a lot. And I was actually, I don't know if I've shared this publicly. Um, I was thinking of sitting as an independent, but I didn't because I made, I made a promise to my former mentor and who wasn't around anymore and that I would see it through to the end, whatever that was. Um, so that's what I did. I stuck it out because I'm that strong person who will just be like, okay, I got my blinders on. I know what I'm going to work on and this is what I'm going to do. And um, focused on my constituency, focused on doing what I had to do. And, you know, I, we, Every door we knocked on in the 2015 election, people were like, oh my goodness, it's Radhika. Come, 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 everybody come. You know, it was awesome. Every person I talked to was like, Radhika, you're going to win. Don't you worry, you'll win. But your leader, I don't know. I don't know. And then we did, after the election, many people were like, Radhika, I'm so sad you didn't win. But, you know, I, your, your leader, I couldn't vote for him. I voted for Justin Trudeau. And... They're like, I'm surprised you didn't win, though. A lot of people didn't get that they didn't vote for Justin Trudeau. They voted for the person who ran against me. Um, so many times you can be the best local politician, but at some point in a national election, those national airwaves take over. The national campaign takes over and it either helps or it hinders. And in the 2011 campaign, it definitely helped because it gave me the bigger boost than I probably would have gotten on our own. I still like to believe that we would have won, you know, because <laughs> of the campaign that the community ran. Um, again, it's not a campaign I ran, it's a campaign that the community ran. Um, and the ownership of my campaign that in 2011 that literally the community had. I literally had 
people I had never met before walking into my campaign and saying, hi, I'm really excited about this. I want to help. And that's how we recruited volunteers. People walking in the door saying, I'm on, I mean, I'm on board. Let's do this. I guess the question that I, I had around that was uh, someone that often reflects on like what I could have always done better in any situation. Do you think there was anything that you could have not necessarily changed, but like in, like some room for improvement looking back that you could have done better in some way? Did you know that every time you left a five out of five review for this podcast, a Tamil parent lets their child pursue a career in the creative arts? Okay, that's probably not true. But if there's a chance that it is, do you really want to jinx it? Leave a review. Do it for the young creative in you. As a member of parliament. Uh, just like, yeah, member of parliament, but even that, you know, the experience after, like, um, like you said, when you're considering running for an independent and just running that campaign, probably not, I mean, I'm taking, speaking for you, but um, maybe not with the same passion you would have if Jack was around and like, you know, the, the dynamic had been different where you were contemplating being independent versus, you know. Uh, being no, no. When, when the campaign happened in 2015, I still had the same passion because... Okay. It wasn't about Tom. It wasn't about anybody else. It was about the party and the local constituency. I know that they needed good representation that actually got them. Um, something that I maybe could have done differently was recognize that Jack would want me to still maybe be in office and do what's best for me. And when Team Trudeau was knocking at my door every other day saying, hey, can you come run for us? Can you come join our team? Maybe I should have. And uh, considering the outcome of the election in 2015 and the number of brand new people who became MPs, being a young woman of color with four and a half years of experience already being a member of parliament, I probably would have been a minister. Who knows? I could have been. And maybe there would have been more that I could have done. But shoulda, coulda, woulda, and I'm not going to live in those um, yeah, hypotheticals because I wouldn't have been able to, I wouldn't have done whatever else I did do since 2015. And, you know, since 2015, I took time off for myself because I was extremely burnt out. From, I I, no, yeah. sorry, go no, I was I was gonna say, say, from 2009, when I decided to start actually be a candidate, straight through to 2015, I literally did not take a break. From 2009 to 2011, the election, I was uh, at some point living at my parents' place in Mississauga at the start because I had just been dealing with unemployment, you know, life for a while. So I was going Mississauga, working downtown Toronto at U of T. And then I drive to Scarborough every night, every day, and then go back to Mississauga and do that triangle every single day for a while until I finally moved back to Scarborough when I could afford it again on my own. And, uh, and then when I was an MP, I, people always told me to have a balance and I was like, no, 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 no. This is my first term. I'm going to do you know, 90, 90% work, maybe 10% play. Um, it was probably less than 10% even, right? Because I was like, no, I'm going to push myself until that first re-election. And then I'm going to try to do a 70-30 balance. That was my goal to, <laughs> to have a 70-30, not even a 50-50. No, no, no. I was, I was hoping for 70-30, but I didn't get re-elected. So I was burnt out. Like every weekend when I came back to Scarborough, 
I would go to at least one event on the Friday when I came back. And then on the Saturdays and Sundays, every day, I, I was at at least, you know, seven to nine different things each day on the Saturday and then the Sunday. And then Monday morning, I flew back to Ottawa and Ottawa, your workday started at usually 7.45 or 8 a.m. and went till about 9.30, 10 at night. Because all those lobbying meetings happen at breakfast meetings and dinners and then socials and blah, blah, blah. One thing after another was literally 8 a.m. to 10 p.m. every day in Ottawa. And then I'd continue till maybe 11 or 12 at Fridays and then all day Saturday, all day Sunday and rinse and repeat. I was burnt out. So I took eight months off and did nothing. Even though it sounds like it was obviously very demanding and you've had some time to kind of step away. I got to ask this, is politics maybe in your future again, or have you completely kind of ruled it out altogether? (laughs) I've learned to never say never. So um, that's one of my learnings actually from the whole process, because I did say never to some things and I realized I can't Um, because as I grow, as I change, as I learn, you never know. I'm not saying politics is completely in my rear rear view mirror. Um, I'm not saying that I'm going to run the next election. I don't know is what I'm saying. We'll see what the future has. And that's a good answer. Now that you've kind of stepped away from that and you got to now get into your other passion or other love, which is education. How's that going? Like, what have you been up to um, in that world? Like, tell us about what you're excited about um, that you're doing in that world. Right. So post-secondary education is something that I've spent a lot of my uh, time in. I guess over the last 15 years, I've been involved in post-secondary education and advocacy, starting from, you know, the Students' Union and the Canadian Federation of Students. And then I worked in operations management and advice and as an advisor to executives within the student movements. Um, I worked in institutional research for Carleton. I uh, then decided to disappear from this world for a little bit and then come back as a professor. Um, That was again, somebody who I had done work with in the Vietnamese community that said, hey, you would be amazing in the front of the classroom. You need to teach. When you're ready, let me know. And she gave my resume to her her manager who is now my manager as well. I just went for a meeting. I thought it was a meeting. And apparently it was her deciding that she was going to hire me. And that first semester, I said, can I just have maybe one course or maybe two, just to kind of feel it out, see how I feel, if I like it or not. And she's like, yeah, yeah, of course. And then I found out I had five courses that semester because she was so excited about my resume. She's like, oh, you can teach this and that and this and that and whatever. And so I had a whole bunch of courses, jumped in the deep end. um, And I realized that I love it. I love the interaction with the students. I love the energy that I can I literally feed off of the students' energy. And it's just so exciting to be in a teaching and learning environment. Um, and things have shifted now because of uh, the move to virtual world. But still, I love being in the classroom with the students. Um, And most of my students are, I mostly teach in the postgraduate program. So they're all people who are brilliant. Um, People who have, you know, most of them are people who have had 
full lives in their home country and decided to uproot themselves and come here and pursue the avenue of education to prepare themselves for the work world here in Canada or migration to Canada. And so I've had people with their master's degrees, PhDs, engineers, family, you know, whole, you name it. I've probably had them as students in my classroom. So I've learned so much from my students and I'm sure they've learned something from me as well along the road. Um, so I've decided lately, <clears throat> recently um, to double down on the world of post-secondary education and higher education and start my PhD in higher education as well. So, uh, yeah, I'm excited about what we can do in the world of higher education. You definitely have teacher vibes. Like you have a teacher aura <laughs> for sure. Even the way you politely corrected me several times about your last name. It wasn't really mean or like, it was just more so like, yeah, just get this right. And I, I felt the pressure to learn how to say your name, your last name correctly. So yes, I can definitely testify and just, you definitely would, I could see you being a great teacher. So that's awesome that you're enjoying it. Um, you know, you talked about kind of the shift in education um, to the online world, obviously because of COVID and that impact. How do you, I've asked this of like several other people, kind of the education space. I'm curious on your take. How do you see the future of education playing out uh, post COVID? Um, one popular take, and you don't have to like even comment on this, but that I see and I'm very curious about is, two schools of thought. One is the big brands will continue to survive like the UFTs, the Harvards, um, and, you know, double down on the reputations and kind of continue to grow. And the, the smaller players or lesser known players will kind of die down a little bit. And you're kind of seeing that in the States with like community colleges and things like that. Um, or that's just, I guess, BS and, you know, uh, it's totally different, but I'm just curious, like in general, how do you feel about the world of education moving forward um and like another thought i would ask you i don't know if you probably do know who scott galloway is but like that kind of model as well where instead of you know full-on like four or five year degrees kind of moving towards like bite-sized courses micro-credentials um, yeah that's like a bit more you know a la carte so you know if you're doing engineering for example <laughs> you're doing you know, literature, whatever it is, you don't have to take whatever is kind of prescribed to you, but you can kind of pick and choose. So yeah, go ahead. I don't have a crystal ball. Um, my, micro credentialing, the idea of micro credentialing has been around for a while, but it's definitely um, something that a lot of the colleges are pushing for um, the world of colleges in Ontario. And I know from speaking with some of my colleagues in Vancouver as well. You know that many of the colleges across the country are pushing for micro-credentialing um, because that is what industry is looking for as well. And I'm speaking from a college perspective and not necessarily a university perspective because that is where I have a little bit more of an exposure. Um, in colleges in Ontario, when, when um, former Premier Davis created the colleges, it was about the idea of bringing together industry, academia, and um, what, what are the needs and the, and the people, right? So based on what industry needs, definitely micro-credentialing will be something that will continue to grow. And I think it needs to grow because 
with the bigger academic programs, if I may call them that, like degrees or diplomas, um, they are far more rigid, if I may say that. And the process of getting them ready and accredited takes so long that it's not as agile as a micro-credential program could be. Um, so I think the weight for colleges and possibly also universities, because I know Harvard is doing things like this, you know, credentialing or certificates is what they call it, um, will allow for the educational institutions to be more agile and be more responsive to industry specific needs. And you've probably observed as well that the universities are trying to move into the college space and some colleges are trying to move into that university space. So there's that meeting ground of colleges offering degrees and universities saying that their education is vocationally inspired or aligned with industry because that's what colleges are about. So I think that overlap is going to continue. And yes, some of the smaller institutions I do expect will disappear over time. Um, either, either those smaller institutions will, I don't want to say dissipate, but, uh, or maybe just get acquired by the larger institutions that are looking to grow in other regions, because I don't, I don't think it's right that, for example, one of the Northern colleges to just close because it's not financially feasible because there's a lot of people in those communities that these colleges are the only ones that they have access to. So access is a hugely important piece, especially in the idea of colleges in Ontario. Um, and it's, I don't think it's okay that just based on your postal code, you shouldn't be able to have access to a university education if that's what you want. So we still need to have the capacity to offer these services. And I think that's where COVID was maybe even a blessing because of COVID, I created a course that was completely 100% um, online asynchronous four years ago and have been running it with Centennial. But because of COVID in the, in the HR program, it's not just my one course anymore. The, 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 the postgraduate program itself is completely now designed to be available virtually. So it, it now makes Centennial's program, if that's what somebody living in Thunder Bay wants access to, it opened up the doors for them. They can now get a Centennial certificate from Thunder Bay. They don't have to have the whole difficulty of leaving their home. Somebody living in, a, in, a, in an Indigenous community or a reserve, if as long as they have access to internet and a device and clean drinking water, let me just slide that in there, um, then housing and clean drinking water, then they will be able to get a U of T de uh, degree or a centennial diploma or certificate if that's what they want. So the idea of access, I think COVID has been a blessing about because it just smashed open that door. Um, has it been fun for everybody? No. We're going through the growing pains, really. Um, some of us are more comfortable and confident in using the technologies, um, and others aren't. And uh, I hope that 
we do have more people who are providing that support to the others who are less comfortable in making that transition. Um, I have colleagues who are just holding on, waiting on bated breath to be able to go in person because they can't do this virtual stuff anymore. They're just like, nope, I, I want zero classes online, 100% in person. And there's others that are saying, you know what? I don't wanna leave home ever again. And so now, just like the, the numbers are coming in about overall workplaces, I think it's the same thing in, in the education sector where faculty as well as students are gonna wanna stay and do it from home. Because now I've, I've had students who are, you know, working in a hospital or whatever, and they're like, okay, so your class is exactly during my break and I add on an extra hour and now I get to do your class in the middle of the day and still work my full-time job. So it allows for more flexibility and freedom as well, not just for the faculty, but for the students as well. Now we've spoken a lot about your career. Now we're going to kind of get a bit more introspective. What would you, so if you had a chance to get access to a time machine and you can go back and visit 16-year-old Radhika, what would you tell her? Money can be hard to come by, but here is a $100 opportunity for you. Join my free newsletter for free exclusive content and a free chance to win $100 when I hold special draws. Did I mention that it's free? 16-year-old, what grade was I in? 11? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So grade 11 me. Hmm. Well, the first thing that came to my mind when I, when I realized it was grade 11, it was stop focusing so much on the sciences <laughs> <laughs> because, you know, I had to be a doctor. The expectation was to become a doctor. Um, and I worked in the hospital for five years and realized I didn't want to be a doctor anymore after being in the trenches. Um, so I would first say focus less on science, but now my, my daughter says she wants to be a scientist and I'm able to talk her ear off about science. So maybe it's a good thing. Um, no, I would tell my 16 year old self to trust myself more, to have faith in me more. I didn't have a lot of faith in me. Um, even though outwardly I was doing so much, I struggled a lot with self-esteem and um, depression and you know, mental illness and felt like I had to do it all on my own and that it wasn't something, not that I couldn't reach out to my parents because I did. And I've had many nighttime cries with my parents and they didn't know how to support me. So they just let me cry and cried with me. Um, and I felt like, you know, earlier I said, I didn't feel a lot of responsibility because I'm the youngest of four, but I was always a trailblazer. I felt like I was a trailblazer in my family on many things. And that, you know, I would, I was the only one of my sisters who played on sports teams. And I literally was on every single um, student club that was available at my high school. And I was on the student council as well. And, you know, I felt like I had to do everything and I had to I guess I never learned really. I had to be everything and do everything. And um, maybe if I learned that when I was 16, I probably wouldn't have overdone it when I was 29 and 30 as an MP. Um, I felt the weight of the world in, I, my mom was working so hard. So I was like, you know what? I'm not going to be a burden on you. And I started working when I was 14. Um, when I was 
16 is when I started working at the hospital actually. Um, and so, and wanted to pay my mom rent and see if I could help. And I, I remember in grade 10, I told her, I was like, well, I want you to retire and, you know, I'll take care of things. And uh, I had three older sisters, but I felt like it was my job, my responsibility to do that. So I would tell myself to actually figure out how to be a child, um, how to be a young woman and just enjoy that part because I, I was really busy in work, 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 work. Um, and that could have been schoolwork because I had to excel. And that was the expectation, right? Because you had to get at least an A. So that was an 80. And so my dad's rule was you had to get an 81 and I couldn't just be over the threshold. So my rule for myself was I had to get an 82 at least. Um, so I really pushed myself academically. Um, I loved sports. So I played on every sports team. Um, I was on and the community development and the organizing that just came to me naturally. And I was on every single club at school. I sang in the choir. I, you know, it was just a lot. I did a lot. I was recognized for it. Sure. And it was nice to be recognized, but I think I needed to do a little less and slow down. You don't have to do everything. And, you know, the other last week or two weeks ago, I met this young woman who is a musician, a producer, a university student. Um, she has her own business and then she's a judo or some sort of um, martial arts expert and stuff. And I'm like, young woman, where are you being? When are you having time for yourself and your friends? Like I saw, I saw the, you know, 20 year old me in her. And uh, I wanted to say, just chill, take off one thing from your plate. Yeah. If I could, I, I'd learn that. And uh, that's something that I'm still trying to learn, but um, the, the eight months that I took off after the 2015 election was to just exhale and finally feel like I could exhale. And now I'm learning to say no. No is a new word for me. And I'm really, I feel like I'm letting people down or I'm missing out, but I also know that I need to do that for my own well-being. But you said yes to this. I said uh, yes to this. <laughs> um, so now we look backwards. Now, how about looking forward in terms of your personal legacy? Um, how would you want to be remembered by friends and family? Friends and family? Um, just as me. Um, when I talk with friends and family, you know, they they we we are very expressive people. Um, and so it's that I've always been someone who is affectionate, who is caring and will bend over backwards for you. If I, if I care for you, if I love you, I will bend over backwards for you and do anything. Um, I, they tell me that, you know, they're, I'm somebody that they turn to when they need support. And I'm grateful for that. You know, I'm, I'm, and so that I was always, a rock that they could lean on. Um, they seem to think I'm funny. Um, I, I really this, this is, part I'm of me. Just, no, I'm just kidding. I, I can see that. <laughs> I know what I said was I don't see that, but I'm just joking. <laughs> no, but this is where I question myself, right? I need to just trust it. Yeah. I need to just trust it when, you know, 
nine out of nine or nine out of 10 people say, oh my goodness, you're so funny. Stop making me laugh. And I'm like, oh, okay. Um, so I guess that I, that I was kind, this is me writing my eulogy. Um, <laughs> that I was that's, kind. Where this, that's where this question came from. It came from that book. Um, people laugh because they always say I bring up this book. What is it? Tuesdays with Murray or whatever I think it's called. I didn't, I didn't read this. Yeah. I'm going to have to look it up. You're going to have to send me details. Yeah. No, that I was kind. I was considerate that I, um, loved them um and i mean that i i was I, i've always been a a leader and a pusher of some sort whether it's standing in the in your corner and being your cheerleader or saying you know what it's my turn now let's give me a machete let's bla- let's bla- blaze this trail um because there's many trails that i didn't know how to traverse and did the best i could and continue to do the best I can. Um, and that's that. I mean, when I became an MP, young woman of color with the NDP in Toronto and Scarborough, uh, there weren't many I could lean on and be like, hey, how was it for you? So I turned to my sisters in the labor movement who had experience at the federal level and international level and said, hey, help me. How do I do this? I don't know how to do this. I know you don't know how to do this but maybe your path is something I can learn something from. Um, so it's what I do. And even now as a, in the world of academia, um, there, are, there are definitely South Asian women or women who have come before me. Um, I'm in a faculty where it's literally men and me. So it's interesting and navigating these waters keeps it interesting for sure. The political plays that happen are something that we just deal with. And this is where I use all my conflict resolution skills and put it to good use. So did, it did come, your background in politics did come, became useful in another realm, which you probably wouldn't oh, expect. Oh, of course. Yeah. I don't think it's not useful at all. I use it every day. Yeah. And um, many of my examples that I'll talk with my students about, some of them are from my not-for-profit uh, corporate experience but also or public service experience but by far vast majority of my experience that I talk about is from the time that I was an MP because I was a manager in a unionized environment I was a team member I was somebody who was a spokesperson and did a lot of communication it was a lot of stuff that you did in that small little time and that's a good segue into the final segment of the podcast um, <clears throat> all right here goes this is me <laughs> my knuckles I, mean, I don't know how to but no. <laughs> um, it's a it's a game that I like to call creator confessions I'm going to basically say a bunch of statements and you're going to tell me the first thing that kind of pops into mind okay can we do an example first no <laughs> you'll okay, be fine, fine. <laughs> I'm nervous uh, let's go um, favorite Tamil food favorite Tamil food hmm. first thing that came to my mind right now is appam Something that scares you. My daughter's future and the uncertainty of it. Insecurity that you have. (laughs) That I question my own instincts. Favorite show you're watching. Oh, nothing right now. I just finished watching this um, this French show, but uh, I'm not watching anything, but I found out that I'm going to start watching Game of Thrones. I haven't really watched it, so Mm. I'm excited about that. I liked it, but uh, I liked people would disagree with me but i really like 
uh, The Witcher. I don't know if you've heard of it, but I've seen it, but I don't know what it is. So maybe I'll start watching that first then. Yeah, I enjoyed it's newer, it. Right? I, I, it's newer, yeah. Okay, so maybe I'll start with that. I don't know. It's an unpopular opinion, but I Game of Thrones it's... is really long, so it's a yes. big commitment. So... Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So maybe that's what it is now. Who knows? <laughs> a place you're itching to travel to after this pandemic is over. Jamaica. A fellow Tamil creator you want to give a shout out to? Hmm. Well, first person that came to my mind right now is Elizabeth. Elizabeth Malini. Yes. Singer. Yes. She's she's awesome. And Satya, she's great at bringing women together. So, yeah, those two are the first two that came to my mind. Favorite childhood memory? Sitting on an apple tree. So, you know that apartment I told you about? Yes. Behind it, there was uh, these huge apple trees. And I used to just climb up the tree and sit in this little nook and just hang out by myself because nobody else, none of my sisters would climb. So it was just me. I was just climbing, hang out. Um, something like to do for fun outside of work. I'm sorry, I don't understand the question. <laughs> are you joking? I think you are. <laughs> I couldn't tell. I was like, wait a minute. Sorry, what is this fun thing you talk about? Um, no, these days, mostly what I do for fun is hang out with my daughter. Um, earlier today, we started working on a 300 piece puzzle um, and just chilling with her. She makes me, she literally makes my heart smile. So that's most of my fun is a five-year-old child now. Um, but if it's just me outside of work, um, I mean, I don't know. I don't know what pre-pandemic life was anymore. So I only associate with my sisters for the most part, or my my girlfriends who are neighbors as well. So working out with them is really fun for me. Um, or, you know, just putting our feet up and chilling with either my my girlfriends, my my friends, or, or my sisters. What's uh, a purchase you've made in the last couple of years that you splurged on, but you have zero regret about? First thing that came to my mind is my Lomi. Um, I haven't received it yet, so hopefully it works and I won't regret anything. Uh, you're like, what is this thing? It's a countertop composting thing that um, oh, okay. takes, your, it, yes. takes your compost and yes. makes it into basically soil that you can I add thought I've heard of it before. Okay, got it. Oh, you have. That's I awesome. Have, yes. I'm, I'm really excited it. about it. I, I'm part, I was part of like the, while they were still designing, let's, you know, help put funds and uh, pre-order it. On Kickstarter? Two, two years in advance kind of thing. Yeah. Was it on, it was on Kickstarter, isn't it? Or something like that? <clears throat> I don't even remember. Come on, okay. remember the memory. Focus. Yes, I forgot. Memory I forgot. Is... <laughs> uh, a pet peeve of yours. <laughs> grammar, poor grammar, poor grammar. Did I have? I don't. I don't remember. People, I don't even remember the biggest of my poor when when spoken anyway is the the take and bring when people use take and bring incorrectly. It just yeah. It makes me have to. I don't. I don't. It doesn't matter who it is. I just have to be like yeah. Oh yes, you will take that. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's a really weird one, but I'll I'll blame it. Yeah, on hey, age. it's a pet peeve. You're not supposed to judge it. It is <laughs> what true. it is. That's poor true. grammar is a pet peeve of mine. Uh, if you knew that you were going to die tomorrow, a regret that you would have? Um, that I'd be leaving my daughter too soon. That's, yeah. Celebrity whose um, life you'd want to experience for one day. Celebrity whose life I'd want to experience for one day. I don't know. So it, circling in my head is Reese Witherspoon. Why? Because 
<laughs> I knew there was that was coming. Um, she's she's done some amazing things. She sold her. She's, media she's doing so much yeah. awesome yeah. work. Yeah. Um, she seems like she's just down to earth. I mean, I don't know her, know her. Um, she seems she's very down to earth and grounded, um, yet has a lot of avenues and um, soapboxes that she can stand on and does stand on and uh, does a lot of good with her capacity as a celebrity. A book. But also or- has, you know, lots of good family time. A book or podcast. A book you've read or a podcast you've listened to recently that's had an impact on you? So you mean I have to have personal time where I can do podcast listening to or reading? (laughs) Um, (laughs) The last book I think I remember reading is You're Awesome. Yes, good book. Um, Good book because... I have a signed book. Well, then, um, I, I think it's because of the small little nuggets that I could just read and then process and just put into action real quick, because um, it's about recognizing and uh, making those minor tweaks that can be made. Similar to James Clare, why I like him. It's like great insights, but they're actionable, so. Mm-hmm. Um, what's a new belief, behavior, or habit that has improved your life? New belief, behavior, or habit that has improved my life. Um, well, I moved out of the city. I think that's a new behavior for me because I can just go out as in outside and breathe. Um, and we have clean air. Um, grateful for that. My daughter even feels a difference in the air. Um, some of us like dirty air, but okay. Listen, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not mm-hmm. judging. I'm just saying I'm happy <laughs> that I have the air that I have here. That's it's a good thinner one. air because, you know, it's higher elevation. <laughs> <laughs> and last but certainly not least, um, what's a piece of advice that you would give to your fellow aspiring Tamil creators out there? Um, find your passion, figure out how to make it happen and just do it. And don't be bogged down with what, the world expects of you. Um, I've helped myself held myself back for many things that I did want to do because of fear of uh, what someone else might think or judge or do because of it. Um, what is expected of me? Um, I think I'm, I'm really learning this, even though I've said it and I believe it, I'm being inspired by many other young creators out there who are just throwing themselves out there and doing it. Um, so I'm getting re-inspired by them as well. So other people who are maybe sitting there pondering, wondering whether, should I, should I, should I, should I, could I, can I maybe do it? What do you have to lose? You're back to square one where you're at right now. Or you you might actually, you know, the worst thing that could maybe happen is that you are successful at what it is that you do and you're happy about it. That's great advice. Um, well, with that, we get to the end of the podcast. That was a great episode. Um, it was awesome hearing about, you know, some of the things, was a, a number of stories you kind of mentioned that I don't think were public or like at least really out there. So it's really interesting to hear that. Um, so for, you know, people listening um, that were, you know, that may have not known who you were or did know, but like left, were left inspired by this and maybe want to connect with you. Uh, what's the best way for someone to reach out to you? 
Um, social media wise, I'm most active on, uh, on LinkedIn these days. Um, I am going to get reintegrated or reconnected with my Instagram as well as my Twitter accounts, because remember I said I was being afraid. I just finally said, you know what? I'm done. I'm done. So I've been doing some other stuff kind of in the shadows. And if you were connected with me for whatever reason, you know, I'm working on this stuff, like my business, I have a HR consulting and mediation practice that, um, I haven't gone public about for fear of one thing or another thing. Um, so there's a few things that I want to get out there. So I am going to get back on social media. Otherwise, um, you could always email, but I guess a, a DM through one of the social media is probably best. Facebook, um, warning, my Facebook page with over 43,000 followers has been hacked. And apparently I am a video gamer now and I look like a Vietnamese man. <laughs> so stay away from Facebook for now. <laughs> well, LinkedIn sounds like the best bet. Okay. LinkedIn is the best bet. Yeah. Well, Radhika, um, appreciate you taking time and saying yes. As I know a new habit you've decided on was saying no. So appreciate you making time for this. Uh, really fun having this conversation and, uh, you know, fun not being the oldest person in the room. So thank you. <laughs> thank you again. Um, and yeah, for everyone listening, appreciate you guys as always and uh, look forward to the next episode. Super. Thanks for so much for having me and uh, your patience with me. Um, I really did appreciate, enjoy and appreciate this conversation and hopefully it's, um, it was good for you as well. So thank you. Yes. This has been like six months in the making. So I'm glad we, <laughs> we got to do this.